WATD presents Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. If it's Monday night, it's got to be Monday Night Talk with Kevin Tachi. So thanks for having me on. Kevin, good for you to hold back and let him tell his story. Putting the South Shore spin on politics, current events, and pop culture. You guys are the center of the universe today. At least the political universe. I believe both of you are, are from the area. Marshall guys, yes, no? Correct, yeah. That's right. There's only one person not from Marshfield in this room right now. And it's you. It's me. I'm the outcast. Well, you've always been generous with the time. I appreciate it very much. Well, I'm honored to be on your show tonight, Kevin, with that impressive lineup you have. I believe our guest that we've been waiting for, Congressman Stephen Lynch. Kevin, good to join you. The governor of the Commonwealth, very Charlie good. Becky. You ready? i got to tell you that uh, it was really nice to hear Aerosmith on the intro there. You're going to be the rock and roll governor? I don't know about that, but... <laughs> we have Mayor Joe Sullivan joining us, sir. How are you? Well, Kevin, very good to be with you again. Dr. Drew Pinsky. Dr. Drew, are you there? I'm here. Thanks for having me. Mr. Ming Tsai, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Massachusetts State Auditor Suzanne Bump. Hello, Auditor. How are you? I am fine, and I'm delighted to be with you this evening. And now, your host, Kevin Tachi. Welcome and good evening. You are indeed tuned into Monday Night Talk, and yes, I am Kevin Tachi. And I will be with you until 8 p.m. this evening. As always, we have a fantastic talk lineup. Starting things off in a few moments, we'll speak with State Representative Dave DeCoast, representing the fine folks in the 5th Plymouth District, as he has uh, been up at the State House today. This is an ongoing uh, discussion and debate in regards to a supplemental budget. He'll join us and chat with us and give us an update as to how things are going up on the hill. We'll follow that up with a little uh, season greetings from uh, one of our sponsors, Richard Rosen. He'll join us and bring us up to speed with some of the things with his two fine establishments located in downtown Whitman. That's uh, McGuigan's Pub and then uh, the patio at McGuigan's uh, side by side on Washington Street. I believe... They have the tree up, this thing. If you've, you're somebody who's a fan of Christmas trees, this thing is like 20 feet tall. Uh, I think before COVID, they actually were planning on making it a holiday tree and would put the different times of year, decorate the tree. But then this thing called COVID came along and they had to take the tree down. And remember those days when we had to be sitting six feet apart and wear masks and have, you know, well, I know it seems like a, a distant memory, but we'll talk with Richard about uh, the latest going on at his two establishments. Hour number two, we're going to speak with Kerry J. Byrne. I call him the potentate of pigskin. Uh, why do I do that? Well, because I've had a, a longstanding relationship with him for over 15 years, a time when he was the head of coldheartfootballfacts.com and we've talked about the, the Patriots dynasty and we even chatted with him on his way to uh, Super Bowls well we're kind of on the other side of the ascent for the New England Patriots it's it's going downhill quick and uh, the one guy who was uh, who's been banging the drum saying that all this success was because of uh, the joint efforts of Tom Brady retired quarterback and Bill Belichick that prior to Tom Brady coming on the scene that Bill Belichick was a below 500 um, uh, head coach. I'm going to talk with him about that and see if he's 
Got any more uh, thoughts on that, seeing that there's a good possibility that New England, at the end of this football season, may decide to go in a different direction when it comes to uh, its head coach and its uh, front office. And then we'll close things out. If you're a Disney fan, you'll definitely want to stick around. We have Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, and they are the authors of Disney on the Mountain. So happened to be a project that was uh, that Walt Disney was looking to build uh, a palatial, um, you know, tourist park that, uh, well, for some reason, wasn't built. You'll get to hear all about why, thanks to Greg and Catherine's efforts to put this book together. But right now, we turn our attention to State Representative Dave DeCoste, who joins joins us as uh, he's here for his State House report. Representative, how are we doing? Thanks for having me on, Kevin. How uh, how goes, I don't know if I'm saying this uh, literally or figuratively, but how goes the battle? It's, <laughs> I think the battle we discussed earlier in the week is over. Um, as you know, that the, the uh, there was some uh, discussion. As a matter of fact, the Globe had a very good article, which is nice to hear, complimenting the GOP. Um, we wanted a little bit of, um, well, we wanted some clarity and some transparency on some spending that went on. As you know, the, there was a supplemental budget bill uh, closing out the last fiscal year. And included in that bill uh, were some very well-deserved raises mm-hmm. for many of our state employees. Unfortunately, along in that package was a uh, supplemental funding bill for a lot of what I would term um, newly arrived immigrants who have learned to game the asylum system and uh, who are using that to their advantage at, at great cost to the average taxpayer, and specifically $250 million to carry them only through January and only a piece of the educational housing um, support and medical, although mass health tends to be a bit of a mystery now, although it's due to be quite expensive. So the Republicans would have preferred to have a roll call vote on that. And uh, the way that the legislature typically operates is that we have what are called informal sessions that are usually reserved uh, for things like uh, regular housekeeping business, naming bridges, um, recognizing, you know, uh, moving along home rule bills, that type of thing. This was a major bill, and there were many of us, me included, uh, on the GOP side. And to be honest with you, I think many Democrats, although you did not, in their hearts, I think they were with us, that had some real reservations about this spending. What happened uh, today was that they had uh, enough to have, instead of a regular session, a quorum which meant of the 160 reps, we had a bit over 81 show up. There were 14 Republicans uh, to include. I sent you a picture, by the way. You did. Of Rep. Allison Sullivan with her baby. Alina. And Allison came in. Yep, yep. Yeah, Allison came in. It's kind of a shining light. She sits about six, seven rows up in front of me. And she came in and voted with her child. So Allison, for me, uh, came in. And um, the vote was 14 Republicans against and uh, our friends on the other side in support. We did not get a roll call vote. They moved instead uh, for a standing vote, uh, but we did stand. 
And so the GOP stood against that particular spending. So that was, I think, a fair wrap-up of what went on today, Kevin. If I could ask, and that is, so that this $2.8 billion supplemental budget, that's an accurate number, right? Right. Okay. Um, and you're saying $250 million, this is for, is this for the 7,500 sheltered migrants, that's the, the capped migrants right now, or is it just for yeah, yeah, additional? Yeah, that's the problem. It, it's, it's not capped. And no, it, it's for actually includes a spillover shelter. And if you've, the, the press at least has been reporting, I'm sure you've seen, mm-hmm. that they're actually considering leasing out the entire Heinz Auditorium to have a, uh, have a, uh, I guess a large area where they can uh, house them, where I don't want to use the term warehouse, but that's basically what it amounts to. And they'll warehouse these immigrants at, at great expense to us, uh, the taxpayers here. And, and oh, by the way, we, we had hoped to get a limit. We had hoped to have a vote where this uh, shelter policy that the state has, we could modify it to only apply to our citizens, our residents. Um, but it doesn't look like we're going to get either... And as things stand now, it is open-ended. So you, you've probably seen the trail of, you know, the long caravans of migrants making its way up through Mexico over the border. Every one of them could show. And we're the only state in the union that does this. So I think right now the word is out. And uh, not only is there shelter costs, but there are also just support. I can give you, for instance, uh, the group that I have in, in my uh, district, the Plymouth Fifth in Rockland, uh, they're getting three meals a day, catered. They are getting food stamps. Uh, the local government has chosen to fund them to some extent for sundries. And then, of course, there's a medical. I, I, I understand that everyone, each individual who arrives um, will also be uh, eligible for Mass Health immediately. So that's their health care will be either put by Mass Health or put by the uh, hospital where they arrive. And just as a, just as an idea of where we are, I know I, I spoke to our friends over in Taunton, um, individuals I know over there, and, and they arrived about two months ago with 18 pregnancies in their group, and now they have just under 50. So that's where we are, Kevin. So, so my understanding is that at least the, the, your minor, the minority leader, Brad Jones, actually indicated that uh, that the Republicans were poised or hopeful to be able to kind of block this or at least be able to get some kind of a vote. What? How did this all fall short? Well, it, falls, it fell short because there are, you know, well under, there's quite four of us in, in, in the legislature, so we're outnumbered, you know, and, and, and until we have a, a bigger piece of that and we're able to, uh, you know, force votes or, in, you know, when Governor Baker, it would have been nice to sustain a veto. There was... Once upon a time, a long time ago, a, a GOP governor um, who had the ability, by virtue of having a one-third of the Senate, he was able to sustain vetoes. And uh, he said, I had a discussion about that with a former speaker, I won't say who, um, who was in the legislature at that time. He told me, actually, that he thought Governor Weld was excellent, and they got a great deal done because the governor was, uh, let's say, able to temper some of the some of the worst senses, the, the worst instincts of our liberal colleagues, and quite a bit got done in the legislature. But right now, I think, and again, speaking for myself, but I think if this were put to a popular vote in the state, uh, a policy implementing the, the right to shelter only for our residents or our citizens, 
uh, would carry overwhelmingly among the people, but that's not reflected in the legislature right now. Well, does anybody know how the, you know, the folks who, you know, who are, you know, having issues with, with housing and, and, and dealing with homelessness, how they're, how they are, you know, uh, faring throughout this? Are they also being taken care of or well, are they being, you, or they being put on a back burner? Do you, do you know, do you have that information? Yeah, I, I can give you just an, uh, you know, a mother-in-law's survey, uh, uh, an anecdote from here in, in uh, my, my district. I had a gentleman uh, who was essentially told he had to get out of the Comfort Inn, although they had since retracted that once we made an issue. But the Comfort Inn was prepared to evict everyone. I have a letter directed towards him. Well, he was, um, in, in the short of it, without well, while retaining confidentially, he is... He is disabled. He's severely disabled. He was able to live in the Comfort Inn uh, for just under $2,000 a month, and it, he, he could manage it. Um, not by much, but he could manage it. Well, he, he, he you know, when he got that, he was uh, very conscientious, and he went out and found a, uh, another uh, lodging in Pembroke, um, but it, it has set him back $3,000, which he didn't have. He's managed... Um, He's managed to survive through, you know, generous help of local people, um, several local businessmen who have helped him. And uh, I should put a plug in. I'm out, outside the Tritown Rotary, but the Tritown Rotary has also provided him some relief financially to help him out, which is what the Tritown Rotary, Pembroke, Hanover, and Norwell does. We're meeting at Brothers as we speak. I'm outdoors. But, yes, and that, that, that situation that I repeated to you, is uh, is fairly common throughout the Commonwealth. Every one of my colleagues who uh, who is you know who has hotels or a hotel who are going through this can give you multiple examples of where either our citizens have been evicted or certainly where our citizens have been turned away. And yes, it absolutely um, it absolutely is going to be reflected in terms of. You know how much money is available for housing? How much housing is available? Right. There's only you know there's a limited supply here, and um, you know now in fact you know in in town that you know the prices of hotels are becoming uh, prohibitive you know prohibitively expensive uh, for many people. Look at what happened in the Army Navy game. <laughs> so you know it, it is it is a situation that is growing worse every day. Because throughout the United States and the southern border, the word is out that Massachusetts um, is providing uh, basically an unlimited supply of free housing, no matter where you come from. Talking uh, with the state representative, uh, Dave DeCoast, uh, representing the 5th Plymouth District, talking about uh, today's uh, push to uh, to vote for, right? Was there a vote in favor of passing this supplemental budget? That's correct. There was a vote to move the legislation, yes, and it was a standing vote. Um, they do it by section. So there were uh, uh, over 70, it might have been over 80 uh, Democrats and uh, 14 rep- voting in favor and 14 Republicans voting against. So it's, it's worth noting again as we're, we're talking a little bit about the supplemental budget uh, includes $250 million for emergency uh, shelter money uh, and also raises for state workers. My, my, I guess my question to you is, I mean, the, the supplemental budgets come from because when they are estimating revenues and if you end up having excessive revenues above what is projected, that's where you get your supplemental budget, correct? 
Right, correct. And they've got to close out budget based on the final numbers for last year, so that's what they were doing. They were including all of those raises, which, incidentally, the vast majority of those raises could have been wrapped up and voted on last August or September. And I can leave it, you know, to, to you to surmise why that didn't happen. But the bottom line is they, at least at least with this vote, uh, our state workers will get some well-deserved uh, raises. And it will be retroactive to the dates of the agreement, so they'll get a big check. So it seems to me as though the state is going to depend on future supplemental budgets to hopefully be able to pay for the emergency shelter for for the migrants who are flocking to the Commonwealth. Is there? Have you heard anything from folks up on Beacon Hill if there's any works with the current administration to try to find a way to to you know get a system in place or have some kind of legislation that's going to deal with this and make sure that it's going to be equitable and fair not, not only for the folks who are coming into the coming into the country and into the state but also the folks who have probably been waiting for some time to be able to find housing and you know um, and homelessness for themselves well again governor healy indicated that it, as she wanted to put a cap on this. But the legislators' leadership right now does not seem open to capping this. And until they do, um, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people, probably more like thousands, arriving every month uh, demanding housing. Is, by the way, which is, by the way, their right under this law. Mm. Again, we're the only state in the union that does this. Do you feel that this is going to be a a big issue coming next year yet next year is you know the, the midterms for for the commonwealth and it's a, you know it's something where yourself and other state reps and state senators are, are going to be seeking to be reelected and they're going to be you know democrats and republicans out there trying to you know jockey into place to hopefully run for office do you feel it's going to be one of the bigger issues that we'll be discussing next year well i think it can't help but be an issue and here's why kevin uh, right now, our state revenues, which have been since I was elected and, and sworn in in January 2015, we've had our we've had our years of plenty. But if you look at the last string of months, monthly revenues, they're they're going down. We can't afford to do this. Uh, if, if people are interested in, in learning more, the Mass Taxpayers Foundation and the Pioneer Institute have done some very, very good recent analysis of where we stand budget wise. Uh, but I've heard my colleagues on the other side of the aisle already mention the possibility of 9C cuts. Um, and I've called my town administrators and let them know it's something they want to be prepared for. And for the audience, because I know you're going to ask me, 9C cuts, um, because our state is mandated to have a balanced budget, uh, if it looks as though we are going to have fiscal problems, the governor is allowed to go in and reclaim money that has been spent. Um, and uh, so, in other words, I could have, for instance, an earmark awarding a housing authority X dollars. If that money has not been spent, the governor could potentially take back that money. But there, And there's a whole laundry list that Governor Healy uh, would be able to go back and, and take a look and pull back funds to make the budget, you know, to make the budget balanced. Well, what's interesting is is that when this administration took the office, one of the, one of the keystone um, uh, directions that uh, Healy, uh, Governor Healy, went with was is trying to find a way to solve the housing crisis. I mean, does this for, does this cause you know um, 
more problems knowing that we are dealing with the migrant situation and knowing that there are people who, you know, if you're looking to, you know, you're looking for housing, it's, you know, it's going to be all, you know, it's going to be a bigger issue. I would say it absolutely exacerbates the problem. Mm. Yes, it has to. And I would tell you that, you know, they, 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 the, the folks who are arriving have been smart enough to coordinate with the non-governmental organizations to say the things that would allow them to claim asylum status. This is not something that they, and keep in mind, most of these individuals arriving from a very few, uh, very few um, locations, most of them in, in Latin, uh, Central America mm. and, and the Caribbean, the one particular place in the Caribbean. And so there's, there's no shortage of them showing up. And, uh, again, along with that coaching, no doubt, they have to be letting them know that Massachusetts open, has opened the door. And the, 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 the arrivals, from what I am told, the arrivals have not mitigated. They are right. They are right on uh, increasing. It's worth noting, Representative. I actually had a gentleman named Adam Bond on um, uh, several weeks ago, and we were talking about he was actually representing 168 migrants who had come into the country, uh, in and they had came in. They 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 were um, brought into a southern part, a southern state. I'm not sure if it was Texas or Arkansas. And there was they actually had a makeshift um, setup where they were given they were given documentation, told where, you know, this is where, you know, this is where you want to go. And there, there was a situation that, you know, they were sent to different states like Massachusetts that were open to taking migrants. So this this doesn't surprise me. And it's interesting. I'm just curious as to what the federal government is going to do to kind of eventually solve the immigration the immigration problem the migrant problem where yeah this has to be a, a fair and equi- equitable way somebody wants to be um you know they want to be a a citizen of the united states that you know it's it's got to be something where there's a process and it seems as though the process is broken well kevin i think that probably when we won't see anything from the federal government until after the next election and then we might see depending on who is elected a 180-degree change in uh, how we're handling this. But again, the, the, the federal government has made a decision to ignore laws and to establish policies that make, for instance, uh, where asylees used to have to stay outside the country in the first country they, they arrive at, which makes sense. If you're fleeing a country and you make it to a safe country, why proceed elsewhere? Well, the reason that they would proceed elsewhere now is because, number one, the country they arrive at typically is Mexico, and Mexico won't let them stay there. And number two, the uh, the United States gives them um, an open-ended relief at cost to the U.S. taxpayer. I know that you... Well, I don't think we're going to... I don't think you're going to see anything until a year from next January. And then you may see some changes, maybe. Well, that also depends on the, the outcome of the, the presidential uh, election. And how that goes? Yes, that's what now, you're talking about. Now, so <laughs> I know that I know that's what you're talking about because it's setting up my next question, and that is, you know, everybody, you know, right now, Donald Trump is, you know, uh, former President Donald Trump is the one who, in polls, appears to be leading, but he also has a lot of, he's got a lot of problems in regards to uh, the law and uh, court appearances. Is there a candidate other than Donald Trump that that is a Republican that has, stands a chance? to, you know, uh, run for president if Donald Trump is not the de facto 
um, uh, Republican nominee? I, I think that, well, first of all, I always use President Reagan as my benchmark, and that's a little fair, unfair because nobody ever rises to his level. And I guess that's just a reflection of my age. But I would say any of the candidates that we have would be an improvement. Um, as frankly, I think I think the President Biden is, is very frankly, uh, in, in a pretty obvious state of mental decline. I think his faculties are, are severely diminished. You don't need to be. You don't need to be a cognizant, sci- you know, a sci- scientist with, you know, who's able to diagnose those type of things to look at him and, and see that there's he is really not up to the job. So I think that anybody replacing him would be an improvement in terms of the ability to think and act. Um, the question is where we are as a country. And who's going to be voting? And I can tell you on the Republican side, my, my colleagues from the southern states, and I have a few down there that I, I speak to, they are very, very concerned about, uh, you know, new voter drives that they fear will include um, people who shouldn't be voting. Now, keep in mind that we have uh, folks here, we're going to have a voter ID, but we are now, and another problem with this is every one of these people who are coming in here are eligible to get licenses. Um, we license illegal immigrants in the state, and the license they get, the driver's license, is exactly the same as you or I have. So there's no way to differentiate between a citizen and not a citizen. Again, we're one of the very few, many, many, many states, uh, particularly in rural areas, um, will give them licenses, but it's very clear that this is a license not for a citizen. We don't do that here. Mm. Our driver's licenses are all the same. Well, it's definitely a situation that uh, bears watching, and I'm sure that you and I will have uh, more discussions down the road. Anything, as we wrap up this segment, anything that we haven't uh, touched upon, but you want to uh, close out strong with? Yeah, well, I, uh, office hours for me, as you know, at first, uh, office hours are um, uh, the second Tuesday of every month. So I'm at the Rockland Library um, at uh, 6 p.m., second Tuesday of every month from 6 to 7 and this Friday, being the second Friday in the in the month, I will be at uh, Norwell Town offices at nine o'clock, and Hanover Town offices at eleven o'clock, and Rockland Town offices at one p.m. And if anyone uh, wants to get a hold of me, they can certainly call our office or email us at david.thecoast at mahouse.gov, and we would more than would be more than happy to set up times at those times don't want but if they want to come in and discuss what's going on on there and the only other thing you can catch me tomorrow at hanover high school where they'll be having a forum i believe it's seven o'clock uh but they will be having a forum uh talking about the possibility of taking down dams uh all this south shore so if you're concerned possibly about having forge pond dam or reedy studley pond in rockland or jacobs pond in norwell or hatch pond in hanover um, all of those dams could have the crosshairs on them. So if that excites you, you might want to come down and learn what some folks have planned. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you again for uh, giving us the, the latest from uh, what's happening up on Beacon Hill. And we look forward to, uh, if we if we don't talk to you before uh, Christmas of the new year, uh, may you and yours have uh, happy holidays. Well, always good to talk to you, Kevin. Same to you. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah to everyone celebrating. And isn't it a pleasure to have a live in a country where we can discuss this freely uh, without any censorship? Amen.
Amen. There he is. Uh, Dave DeCoast. Good work. You got it. State uh, State Representative Dave DeCoast, uh, our guest. We are going to step aside. And when we come back, we'll get to speak with Richard Rosen. You tune in to Monday Night Talk here at 95.9 WATD. is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi, on 95.9 WATD. Eat, drink, and socialize at the patio at McWiggins in Whitman Center. Sit down with a specialty cocktail and start your meal off with a patio sampler with chicken wings, egg rolls, potato skins, fried cauliflower, and chicken and biscuits. Watch the game on seven 55-inch monitors while digging into braised short ribs, fish tacos, fig and goat cheese flatbread, or koji steak tips. Relax and listen to the live entertainment at the patio every Friday and Saturday night. And don't forget, McWiggins Pub next door. They're located at 546 and 552 Washington Street in downtown Whitman. Hey, it's John Shea here from Almost Famous Radio, introducing you to independent bands and musicians from across New England. Every Tuesday night, 8 till 10, brought to you each week by Tiny and Sons Glass. Coming up tomorrow night, another jam-packed show, tons of new music and upcoming show dates to pass along, and I'll be joined on the WATD Tiny Stage by singer-songwriter Chris Ballerini. That's tomorrow, 8 till 10, 95.9 WATD, and always online, 95.9 WATD.com. Welcome back to Monday Night Talk. Don't just listen, say something. Call 781-837-4900. We now return to Kevin Tachi and Monday Night Talk. We return to more Monday Night Talk. Hey, don't, again, don't forget, later uh, in the show, uh, next hour, Kerry J. Byrne, NFL expert and uh, writer, as well as Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer, Disney on the Mountain. We'll talk about their book. But right now, we speak with Mr. Richard Rosen, a proud uh, sponsor of Monday Night Talk. And, uh, of course, um, a gentleman who likes to make sure I stay on top of things when it comes to the opening for the radio show. Yeah, you're doing a really good job at that, Kev. It's, it's almost done. I swear it's almost done. Okay, I, got, I, I have no reason not to believe you. No, no, it's just, it's, it's, again, a it's, year and a half of promises. It's care- yeah, but here's the thing: there's so many good cuts, and to try to call it <clears> down <throat> to like a mere eight or nine, and knowing if I, I if I miss somebody, or I, I leave somebody out, they go, I've been on your show so many times. Why? It's again, it's in good taste trying to make sure that we kind of get all of the voices that we have on this radio program. I'm sure it'll be perfect when it's done. Perfect's a strong word, but it'll. I think it'll, it'll be, be good. It'll, 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 it'll be, be it'll, it'll be, be better worth, than what you've got. Yes, <laughs> and, and there'll be less aspirins I have to take for everybody who goes. Ah, we did that opening. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, not everybody can be wrong, right? Hey, so breaking news here, Monday Night Talk: the holiday yes. Christmas tree is up in the patio. Yes, it is. It is up, and it's looking really good. I think it's gorgeous. You know, it's funny. We have had so many people, before it went up, coming in going, hey, when's the tree going up? Oh, yeah. When's the tree going up? And uh, it's amazing how many people want to come in and have their picture taken in front of the tree. It's great. I think that tree is more popular than you and the chocolate chip cookie you had made by South Chevotech. I don't know. The, the the cookie still is pretty popular. I, I, I still have people asking me its whereabouts, and yeah. I... <clears throat> respond with as i always do it's in an undisclosed location but yeah the tree's pretty popular i'll tell you it is pretty nice too 
it is. And then the patio is a fantastic ex- establishment. Uh, I think it's probably um, proper to make sure to remind folks, here we are, the holiday season, regardless of the holiday that you celebrate. Uh, perfect time. If you're talking about gift certificates, probably it, it's, it's a, a tough choice for me whether you get a gift certificate for McGuigan's Pub or if you get one for the patio. But they're available now. Yes. So the gift cards are available, and you can buy them, and they're good at either place. They have the, the same name. I mean, they have both names on the same card. So they're good um, at either place. And, yeah, we just started the gift card special on the 1st of December. It runs till uh, Christmas Eve, and you buy a $50 card, we give you a $5 card free. You buy 100 we give you 10 and so on. So we have started selling them, and they are good in both places. So... And again, either establishment uh, is fantastic all year round, right? So you get a gift certificate now. It's something that somebody can enjoy, especially during the you know the the spring and the summer months when either the McGuigans or the patio, where you have alfresco dining and the windows can open. So <clears throat> the gift cards are a great stocking stuffer, as well as McGuigans Pub Pure Honey. Now that is a really good stocking stuffer. I have to tell you, I saw, I was watching one of the, the news, uh, one of the morning news programs, and they had a, a, an individual who was in, it was, it was the Boston Honey Oh, I company. saw that. Was, that was this morning, right? Yeah. And, 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 yeah. And the guy's like, and instead of concentrating on the honey, like he's adding all these other elements, like, let's, let's which, you know, the rubber meets the road with, you know, what the pollinators are in your honey. Yeah. It's, um. I was watching that. There's there's way too many products there. Yeah, you're like you know, oh, add cheese to it. No, the honey stands on its on its own. On its own. I know. Why ruin the taste of it? Why ruin the taste of it? You know, and it's funny that you you segue to talking about honey because you have how many hives? Nine, nine hives that you're nine. able to to draw honey from that you were able to you know uh, harvest. So I mean. It, it's just, it's a hobby. I mean, you know what it's like. You and, you've you been doing it for a while now. I have. It's just, it's an absolutely astonishing life that a honeybee lives. And uh, <clears throat> it's just a great, it's a great um, hobby. In some years I get a good amount of honey. In some years, not so much. But I'm going to tell you, this year, absolutely the best honey that's ever been produced. It's clear. It smells good. It's just really good. And, and it's also not so good. And it's also something that has made its way onto, like you said, it's a great stocking stuffer. And it's also something that I believe that is some of the ingredients for some of the the dishes that you serve. That's correct. That's correct. I also yeah. heard there's a rumor that maybe some of the uh, the things that were in my garden might have found its way uh, uh, farmed farmed a table for either one of your establishments. No. Well, <clears throat> your cucumbers were pretty spectacular this year. I'm still, I'm still. I, I can't understand how you did what you did the way you did it, and you ended up with 300 beautiful-looking cucumbers. Oh, some of them were, were. They were pretty tasty, too. Some of them, though. Here's the thing. I had a, a couple of them that were that were longer than my – from the tip of my fingers to the bend of my arm, if not a little bit longer. And I'm like, where do these – I mean, some of them would – because cucumbers, the plants themselves, can be very viney, and they grow all over the place. I think I only planted seven seeds. That's it. Seven seeds. That's ridiculous. And yeah, I had close to 300 cucumbers. It was amazing. But I I, I, I couldn't, I, I was giving them out to anybody who would ask. It's crazy. Yes. But I have seeds for you. I have, I'm trying to find a, a clever way to give it to you for a holiday gift. 
Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out because you are a pretty clever guy. I have my moments. Um, <laughs> let's let's kind of digressing back to uh, the the restaurants, and it's worth noting again. You know, um, when it comes to eat, to eating out, you want to find uh, different ways, creative ways, you know, to be able to eat out. And, and I believe that uh, you have a plan for for kids to be able to eat out half price kids menus. Yeah, so we introduced it a couple weeks ago in the patio, and we're introducing it this week in the pub. Um, and it's half price, kids eat half price off the kids menu, you know, with an adult up to four kids at table. And uh, I think it's Tuesdays in the patio. And no. Yeah, Tuesdays in the patio, Thursdays in the pub. It's one or the other. I don't remember. No, so I get it in front of me because you and I were do, do, taking notes. It's Tuesdays at, at, at the pub and Thursdays at the patio. Okay, so uh, it, You're right. you know what? If you went into one, you could, and it wasn't there, you could just go across the street. But the fact is, is that it's half price kids, and it's, um, you know, it's a way to bring some some families. And the pub has always been uh, an amazing family restaurant. Um, we were talking about this the other day with some people. That, by the way, <clears throat> Saturday, this coming Saturday, is the 14th anniversary of the pub. Oh my goodness. I know it's crazy, isn't it? It is, I, and I can remember when you decided when you were telling me that you were going to you a you you were going to you know open a pub, and I'm like, you are? And you're like, yeah. And you, to this day, you still you know you still do everything to pull out the stops. You're always you and Danielle and, and Kathy you do you do yeoman's work when it comes to keeping things fresh and new. Whether it's on the menu, whether it's, you know, uh, talent, you know, folks who are going to come in, whether it's some of the things you do to kind of have folks hang out for an evening, single, whatever it may be, you find new creative ways to, to make it a, fa- a family uh, a tradition or at least something that for the family to enjoy when they're out. Well, as you and I have talked about many times, if, <clears throat> excuse me, if you stay stagnant and you don't change things up, you're not going to be around for a long time. So you've got to keep... You've got to keep moving and changing things, and so people want to hear. So, uh, break more breaking news is that after the first of the year, we're going to start entertainment on Thursday nights um, in the patio, as well as excuse me, as well as Fridays and Saturdays, and we're going to change the times for the entertainment in both places because I think it starts too late, and I'm not just saying this because I'm old and I want to go to bed early. It's that. The, the you know the world has changed and people don't stay out as late as they used to so I want to get the entertainment from eight to eleven instead of eight thirty to eleven thirty and we'll see what happens but we're going to start that after the first of the year and again Thursdays uh, in the patio so I think that would be um, it would be kind of exciting to see what happens with that too who is who is some of the local talent that you've tapped or some of the folks that you've invited back from the time to time I don't know if you have it off the top of your head but I, I know that you usually have uh, some fantastic entertainment from time to time. So Ken Snow comes back often. He's a Whitman guy. Yep. Um, Dave Try from Hanson is unbelievable. Um, John Taglieri is great. Um, we have a, a, a man and a woman from East Bridgewater, and their name slips me. Um, and we have Joe Navarez. Um, we have a lot of local talent that a lot of them appear. Jimmy Peters. Jimmy Peters is spectacular. Mm. And these people play both places probably once a month. So it's constantly different. We have a jazz band. You know, I think I, we were talking about this. It comes in <clears throat> one Wednesday a month. It's the third Wednesday. Um, and they are unbelievable. Um, 
so we have jazz on Wednesdays in the patio. So we try to just, you know, make things different and, and again, keep changing it up and keep moving it around and and hopefully we succeed. If there was something that you could take a moment to spotlight for uh, an uh, either an appetizer or an entree in, in either establishment or both, what would you what would you uh, say? So in the pub, I'm I have a sore spot for the the Whitman sampler in the pub is probably and the seafood cakes. They're the two best appetizers, in my opinion, um, over there. And then in the in the patio, we have the the chicken and biscuits served with the hot honey, which is again unbelievable. Um, it's you know we sell in the pub a ton of steak tips. It's as well as in the patio, and both places are marinated differently, so there's a completely different change. But the charcuterie board in the patio is is also pretty spectacular. And and let's not forget we have the sample platter in the patio, which is 100% different than the one on the pub. So there's a lot of really good things on the menu. I definitely can attest to that as far as that they're both different. And no, the, the Whitman sampler is not a, a box of chocolates. It, it's actually, a, let's say, if you're somebody who, who likes uh, fried pickles, if you like what some of the things, uh, mozzarella. Uh, mozzarella sticks, yeah, onion rings. Uh, onion rings and um, potato skins. Potato skins, chicken fingers. Uh, yeah, chicken, it's just, it's amazing. Do, do you it's have a- really Good. You know, the fried food. I mean, I can't eat them, but I do try to sneak in every now and then with a little piece here and a little piece there. So, Is there, you know, is there an entree that you still favor, or is there something that is uh, uh, relatively new to either menu, whether in the past couple of months or past the six to eight months that you've either sampled or you've heard a lot about from your um, from the folks who stop by and visit for a meal? So, first of all, nobody in the world eats as poorly as I do. And is so plain and simple, it's ridiculous. Um, so you can't go by my taste. Mm. You can only go by what people have said. Um, the salmon in the patio is amazing. And again, the steak tips in the pub. Um, and then, you know, we have the weekend specials in the in the pub with the prime rib, which is as good as you're ever going to get anywhere. Um, and one of my favorites, believe it or not, in the patio is chicken masala. Really? It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Um yeah, it's all pretty good. Again, if you're just tuning in, we are privileged to be speaking with uh, Richard Rosen, who is the, the proud uh, owner of not only McGuigan's Pub, as he said, uh, celebrating soon 14 years. But then he decided a few years later, hey, I'm going to build a neighboring restaurant, and that's called the Patio at McGuigan's. And that is an amazing, uh, if you've never had a chance to stop in at either I would strongly suggest, not because I'm telling you as the guy behind the mic, but you can find me at any given time at either of those restaurants enjoying a meal, especially when they have brunch. Yes, which we don't have at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like you changing your, your intro. It's going to happen soon. <laughs> it's going to happen soon. Oh, my. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it will be happening soon. Actually... I think it was the other day I walked in and they, they came up with this new gravy, a sausage gravy that they came up with in the, in the patio because they do these amazing specials every week. Yeah. These, these kids in the kitchen try to outdo one another on what they can come up with. And I'm always like, hey, do whatever you want to do. 
And uh, they came up with a sausage gravy, and one of them said to me, we're going to use this when we start having brunch again. And I'm like, all righty then. At least they're thinking that way. So it's a good thing. You know, again, you and I have been through thick and thin when it when it comes to these two restaurants. And, and look, you know, many you know many restaurants didn't survive the pandemic, and you know, uh, both McGuigan's and the patio have come out strong. How encouraging is it when you have staff that is willing to not only have a little one-upsmanship amongst each other, a little camaraderie, but they're also doing it knowing that you know it's for the betterment of of the customers. Oh, it's amazing, and we we encourage it. My wife, myself, Danielle, we encourage them to to come up with different things all the time. And those specials, it's it's people love them, and it's very creative, and they love doing it. You know, it's funny. We've been there fourteen years, and I think, and I got to double check, but I still think that we have thirteen employees that have been been with us the whole 14 years, which in the restaurant business is unheard of. So we still have a boatload of people that have been with us since the day we opened. And again, if uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on? We just got a, a, about a minute or two left here. Anything we haven't touched upon, but you want to make sure that you, you kind of leave with our listeners? Oh, so we have cocktail specials that Danielle just actually came up with, and they're on the blackboard. I couldn't tell you what any of them are, but they're all... <laughs> They're all holiday special drinks and martinis, and I know we're selling a million of them. And they're all colorful and tasteful, and and it's something that happens every year that that Danielle does, and um, people are loving those cocktail specials. Uh, you wouldn't have the the websites on the off the top of your head, would you? Geez, at least I know that much. Okay, it's um, <laughs> it's um, www. Well, it's McGuigan's Pub M C G U I G G A N S pub and it's the patio at mcguigan's um 781-447-2525 in the patio and 781-447-73 excuse me 7333 in the pub okay well you should know that that's that last one seeing that it's your license plate (laughs) how many people have the same phone number is their license plate that's a good one not not many it could be it could be a it could be a trivia question for morgan white jr there you go so there you go. We could do that. We could do that. Listen, I want to thank you so much for a not only being a very very valuable sponsor to what we do here on a, on a weekly basis, and also taking time out of your busy schedule to kind of share some of the things that you know. Again, a, a successful eatery uh, that has been through you know that that continues to do well and strive for the best on the South Shore. Well, I thank you, Kevin. I did happen to hear the commercial before we went on the air and I pretty nice commercial yeah if you wouldn't say so yourself (laughs) (laughs) thanks very much and I want to wish everybody happy holidays you got it there he is Richard Rosen uh, joining us Uh, we are going to stay up aside when we come back second hour Monday Night Talk don't go anywhere FM Marshfield, WBMS Brockton. The South Shore's first choice for live team coverage of breaking news, emergency traffic, and severe weather. WATD. Located in downtown Whitman, McWiggins Pub is a fashionable upscale Irish sports pub with a lively bar and dining room. 
with all the class of a Boston pub. McGuigan serves a great pub menu featuring favorites like beer-battered fried pickles, Reuben sandwiches, shepherd's pie, bangers and mash, and meatloaf. And of course, they have Guinness on tap. McGuigan's is a great place to eat, drink, and socialize with family and friends. With eight flat-screen TVs, you'll always find yourself in the center of the action of your favorite team. And don't forget the patio at McGuigan's right next door. They're located at 546 and 552 Washington Street in downtown Whitman. Welcome back to Monday Night Talk. Don't just listen, say something. Call 781-837-4900. And now, more Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. Find Monday Night Talk on Facebook and share your opinions. Go to 959WATD.com slash Monday Night Talk. Later this hour, we are going to talk a little bit about Disneyland on the Mountain as we'll speak with uh, authors Greg Gla- uh, Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. And we'll talk with them about their book that's going to be coming out. But right now, we have somebody who we haven't had a chance to chat with in, in some time. A gentleman who I've talked with probably for, I don't know, close to 15 15-ish years when it's come to football and talk about, you know, what's going on locally when it comes to great food and uh, his world travels. Uh, And I'm talking about none other than Kerry J. Byrne. Uh, I fondly have called him over the years the potentate of pigskin. Uh, He's here to join us. Uh, Kerry, welcome back to Monday Night Talk, sir. Kevin Tocci, the hottest working man in radio. I always love being on with you. And, yeah, we've known each other a long time now when you think about it. It's been, yeah, at least 15 years, right? So, yeah. yeah, it goes back maybe to... Maybe close to 20. What, how old were you 20 years ago? Five? Yeah. You're, you're too kind. It's I know it's, <laughs> I, I know it's, it's, it's not as long as your... Uh, your, your, your um, the best hair. What's what is? What do you say about your hair? You got the the world, the, oh, the, the record world, breaking the Iron Man. The, you know, you, you know the Iron Man streak, right? Luke Gehrig and yeah, Cal yeah, Ripken, yeah, and yeah. you know uh, Brett Favre. I have. I'm the proud owner, not the proud owner. The world acclaims it. The Iron Man streak. I am now up to nineteen thousand six hundred seventy consecutive perfect hair days, Kevin. That's wow. a world record. Wow. Nineteen thousand six hundred seventy. Next October. The world will celebrate 20,000 consecutive perfect year days, a global celebration of the Iron Man streak. By the way, the number two all-time record is John Travolta during the filming of Saturday Night Fever with 12 consecutive perfect year days in 1977. We get a little bit of a lead here. <laughs> and I might add, it's also double that of the number of uh, days that the Truman Show was on until it was abruptly cut when Truman realized that he was part of a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Starring Jim Carrey, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we we're have actually you- planning. We're actually planning to end the Iron Man streak. Uh, right now, the plans in the works. But in, in your in your in your listenership area, somewhere on the South Shore, uh, we are going to uh, have a fun, shave our heads for cancer research next year in celebration of the twentieth uh, twenty thousand consecutive perfect year at the end of the streak. So uh, when that comes around, Kevin, I'd love to talk to you because uh, I'm trying trying to make some good of this seriously. It'd be such a joke. So. Okay. Well, let's let's a couple of things that I wanted to have you on for. Probably the, the the primary is to talk a little bit about Bill Belichick, folks. You know, New England Patriots fans. You know, we've been spoiled for a little bit, a little better than than two decades because we had the greatest hand, greatest quarterback, and greatest coach uh, known to football at least at this time. Uh, but when you 
take one of them out of the equation, maybe not so much that not, that one of them may not be as great as we think. But prime, I want to. I also want to start out with talking and paying a little homage to uh, your pig pigskin gala that just took place uh, a couple of weeks ago in the great city of Quincy. Yeah, we called uh, it the Pigskin Gala. We call it America's Greatest High School Football Tailgate Party. And what we did, you know, uh, Quincy is one of the few communities in Massachusetts, maybe the only one, with two high schools that also play each other on Thanksgiving Day. And they're now, they've now played 91 games. And uh, we've had now 36 Pigskin Galas where we gather and have a tailgate before the game. And it's evolved over the years into a civic fundraiser. In fact, uh, uh, I know you're a proud Brockton guy. One of Brockton's finest, Dave Wedge. The author, who you've been a frequent guest on your show, is a regular guest in the Big Skin Gala. And now we, you know, we raise money. We, we, we still get before the game. We are out there at 6 a.m. We've had 300 people this year. Uh, by 9.30, the games, as you know, are at 10 o'clock. And uh, we've now raised over $31,000 for local youth sports and activities. So uh, tailgating for world peace, as we call it. And it's just a, just a fun day. And honestly, we, uh, you know, we now have people from it's Quincy and North Quincy. Both sides of the city come together, uh, as they do after the game. You know, the city's only divided on one day of the year. Uh, we come together in the other 364. And uh, you know what? We were talking about this. In fact, some other schools have come have come to us about it. We'd love to see other communities do this. It's a great opportunity, right? It's, it's the one day we all watch high school football, right? Whatever town you're in, yep. uh, uh, you know, that's that's the day to go watch high school football. And it's a part of the tradition for, I don't know, millions of people in Massachusetts. And by the way, Kevin, what, makes, what, what I love about Thanksgiving football, it's pretty much only a Massachusetts tradition. Growing up, I thought all of America did it, and it's really it's it's a lot of New England, you know, parts of New Hampshire, parts of parts of Rhode Island, Connecticut do it, parts of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey do it, but Massachusetts, it's the thing, right? Everyone is playing on Thanksgiving morning. That is a that is a Massachusetts tradition, and I'm actually bummed that other states don't have it, right? Mm. I mean, that if you don't have high school, what are you doing Thanksgiving without high school football? To me, it's fine, but we turn to a fundraiser. We have we have a whole volunteer team. You know, we have a great feed. We have donations. Uh, uh, Victory Point and Marina Bay is, is uh, 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 provides a lot of the food for us. Braintree Brewhouse and Braintree, Alex Casares is our founding sponsor. Uh, he puts up the primary uh, sponsorship check. Uh, you know, Swimming South Shore Bar Pizza, which you and I are both fans of, yep. at Braintree Brewhouse. He's been kind of the catalyst for all this. And we've now, you know, we raise a lot of money and we have a good time and we celebrate America and, and, and high school football and in uh, high school football, more specifically in Massachusetts. And I just want to make sure that we also mention that there is – uh, there is a, a donation page, a Pigskin Gala Fund 2023 page. That That's still live. Is, is that correct? And there's a GoFundMe? Yeah, yeah. We'll keep, keep it live. Uh, we've, we've hit our fundraising minimum on that page. But uh, but if people want to donate, and this, this year goes to Quincy Youth Football and Cheerleading. We are supporting, you know, we want to perpetuate our love of football, right? You so, love football, Kevin. I, I love football. Your listeners love football. We talk passionately about football whenever you and I get together every year. And we're not alone. So what we are doing is we are, we are supporting for the last several years, we've gone, we've gone into the band program, lacrosse, wrestling, cheerleading, but now we are donating specifically to Quincy Youth Football and Cheerleading. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids participating. We are perpetuating the love of football, the tradition of football, in, 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 uh, in Massachusetts. So we're, we're very proud of that. And, you know, a lot of our money goes to, you know, helmets. Uh, you know, uh, there's big innovations in helmets for, ch- for children's safety. Uh, we, we help with that. So we're doing a lot to kind of, one, not only, not only uh, uh, promote a level of football among kids, but also encourage parents that football is safe to play. You know, there's been a lot of kids that have been pulled out of football in recent decades, recent years, specifically. Uh, it's actually safer than soccer. It's safer than a lot of other sports. 
Uh, but the image is that it's uh, it's an unsafe sport, and you know we want to make sure that kids uh, kids are getting the you know the best uh, you know the safest equipment possible to to encourage uh, encourage parents to let them play. It's an incredible game, a game that promotes teamwork and camaraderie and unity and 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 spirit and discipline and all the things we want in our children. Football is all about that. As is cheerleading, we also are sponsoring youth cheerleading, so we're all about that, Kevin. And again, if folks are just tuning in, uh, we're, pri- we're privileged to uh, have Carrie J. Byrne uh, join us, a gentleman who for many years I've talked uh, football with him. Uh, he's busier with other endeavors these days. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I see him occasionally kind of talk with folks, the pundits out there, you know, we enjoyed some great years here with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Tom has since decided to call it a career. He's going to be uh, calling football. He's going to be uh, part of a football broadcast uh, in the near future, I believe next year. But, you know, uh, Bill Belichick being called, uh, you know, the thought was is that he was going to be able to continue on with the Patriot way. And, and I think I've seen you I, I've seen you post from time to time, Carrie, uh, about, you know what, not so fast. I look at Bill Belichick's record prior to Tom Brady and look at it now. Yeah. Yeah, listen, uh, we've been on this since, literally since day one. So 20 years now when Brady, when, you know, more than 20 years now. Wow, it's hard to believe, right? It's been almost 25 years since Brady first stepped on the field, right? Yep. And listen, Bill Belichick's a Hall of Fame coach, right? I mean, you can't take away, you know, what, what he's done. But the reality is, is he was a struggling, losing coach. Uh, with a hundred, he had coached 100 career games before Tom Brady stepped on the football right. field in 2001. That's, that's a career for most people, okay? Uh, uh, and his record was 42 and 58. It doesn't take a math major. It doesn't take a potentate of pigskin to realize that's a 420 winning percentage, Kevin. Right. That's not good. Nope. That's not good. That, he was not going to be offered another job uh, as a football coach after that 2001 season. They were 5 and 11 the year before. They started out 0 2. They couldn't score. They couldn't do anything. They were 5 and 13 uh, in Belichick's first 18 games as a, as a Patriot coach. And people think. He built this great team in, in Cleveland. He did not. He had won 11-5 season with one wild card playoff win against the Patriots, coincidentally. This guy was a, he had a, you know, kind of a middling, struggling coach. That's what he was. It's not, it's not, it's not crapping on him. It's just looking the numbers up. That's what they are. 42 and 58. And that's who he was. What happens? All of a sudden, game three, you know, at the end of the, you know, the Jet team in 2001, Brady comes in, you know, that, that game is almost over. All of a sudden, they're lighting up teams. They're scoring doubled. They're scoring doubled, almost doubled that year with Tom Brady at quarterback over the previous eighteen games. They go on to win the Super Bowl. They went through like everything changed in an instant. Everything changed in an instant, mm. and it wasn't a coincidence. And so it, it wasn't. It wasn't. And for some reason, people people didn't put two and two together. They wanted to say, "Oh, this is a great coach." And no, it was a quarterback. It's a quarterback league. It was all about the quarterback. It was always about the quarterback. The NFL has always been about the quarterback. It doesn't matter who your left tackle is. It doesn't. They're all the same. That's what we learned at Cold Heart Football Fast over the years. Uh, there's only one position that matters. And I know it sounds simplistic, but everything proves it. The Patriots have proven it. And when they unceremoniously let Brady go, that was a that was a that was an arrogant move because you knew you knew they were going to struggle after that. You knew they were not going to win again. You knew that. And people said, "Oh, Belichick is a coach." And he wasn't. He wasn't. And what are we looking now? His career, his record now. Since then, 27 and 34, okay, 61 games. That's a 442 winning percentage. 420 before Brady, 442 after Brady. And what happened with Tampa Bay 
when they get Brady. They win a Super Bowl. Yeah. So what happened to Tom Brady? They struggle. I I think it was the most arrogant. They they should have let Tom Brady die on the football field in, in, in Foxborough. Whatever, give him whatever he wants. Acknowledge what he brought, who he was, the greatest single, most influential single player in the history of the game. And the organization to me died that day. Like they they don't they don't they don't they don't deserve you buying a ticket. But what they, you know they they let this guy go when they they should have just bent over whatever you want, Tom. Whatever you want, they. Tom Brady earned the right to die on the football field at 75 years old. And they, they kind of they, they kind of insulted him. They totally insulted him. And now you're seeing you get what they deserve. They, 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 they are not a great team. They don't have a great coach. They had one day the greatest quarterback of all time, and that's it. That's it. And now nobody can deny it. Now it's not. Now there's a track record. And we've said it, we've said it from day one. It's not Johnny come lately. The cold hard football tackle will always, always, always in front of this. And it's, you just listen to numbers. Don't look at your opinions. Look at the numbers. And that's it. That's it. It's not, it's just is what it is, Kevin. And uh, I think everyone now realizes it. So, everyone now realizes it. So I want to throw this in there. So so basically what you're saying is, is that a generational talent like Tom Brady was the antithesis to this. Because there, there was a lot. I mean, they had the first bit of a, a dynasty when they won three Super Bowls. And there was a lull. And then they won another three, and they actually they won them in you know similar fashion within yeah. you know a certain amount of time. None of this isn't you know uh, having good coaches, other good players. You feel that like Tom Brady was the one who kind of covered up a lot of the deficiencies no, that this no, team it's had. Not, it's not they covered up anything. It's, it, they've made the NFL. They've, they've legislatively created a game. The NFL legislatively created a game through rules, through penalties, through everything that makes it all about the quarterback. If you don't pass the ball efficiently, you don't win. That's all it's about. They've eliminated defense. They've eliminated the kicking game. Yeah. The NFL, whether they realize it or not, has made it a game about one. It's always been, the quarterback's always been essential to success. And we've proven it through the years. You know, the Green Bay Packers didn't win in the 60s because they ran the ball. They, ran, they won because they passed the ball more efficiently on offense than any team in football. And we, you know, that was kind of the, the, the light goes off moment for us when we looked at that and realized, you know, it really is always been a quarterback game. Uh, so it's not, it's just, you got 52 other guys on a roster and then, you know, you're off, it's not high school where Brockton has a bigger, better offensive line than Whitman Hanson. Okay. Mm. Uh, it, they're all, they're all kind of equal. No one, no one, no one's out there going to, you know, pound, pound the other team in the submission. It's all about that quarterback efficiency. And it's really that simple. And the, the, the Patriots proved it. Tom Brady wasn't a generational talent. He was a, a, a whatever bigger is generational. He was a, a once in the history of the game talent. And they seem to not acknowledge that. They seem to believe their own height that uh, they could win without on that, you know. And they can't. They can't. They can't. They if, can't. We, if, we know that now. If folks are tuning in, we got a, a few more minutes before we, we end the program and, and also say goodbye to uh, Kerry J. Byrne. I guess I have to ask, and that is, is with, do you think that the, the crafts will pull the plug on, you know, or the, will they pull the plug on Bill Belichick at the end of the season? Or do you think that they will give him a chance to draft? Draft you know, right now they're they're, po- they're poised to to be top three when it comes to drafting. The only thing that would drive I think Patriots fans crazier is if he drafted you know a defensive player instead of trying to get the next great signal caller here in New England. I I I I, I saw someone post on uh social media that, oh, you know, they they got to get Marvin Harrison Jr. out of Ohio State. And I laughed at it. I laughed at it. He's not going to help you. He's not going to help you unless you have um, a quarterback. It's yeah. really that simple. 
and people need to simplify it. But you know, I, you, you just look at just look at what it, you know, look at what they become. Uh, uh, it's, it's a Belichick trade. Take away the name. Here's his career record without Tom Brady: sixty-nine and ninety-two. Are you going to keep sixty-nine and ninety-two around any longer? Is that the coach you want? Do you want the sixty-nine and ninety-two coach along, you know, coaching your team any longer? How many more years of, of mediocrity and failure do you need uh, before you pull the trigger? Take away the name. Are you going to keep that guy? No, 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 no. And, and, you know, and to me, to me, the linchpin was I. I mean, I personally disowned the Patriots organization after they were left way to go. Like that, I was. It was so deeply offensive to to the game, to the history of the game, to the understanding of the game. They became the New York Jets in that day. They became the New York Jets. And what are they right now? What are they, when you watch them, what do you think of the New York Jets? Yeah, they're bumbling. They're a butt fumble away from being actually they're a butt the... Fumble, that's who they are. Yep. And, that's, and that's who you knew they were going to become. And they, it was just deep arrogance, deep arrogance beyond, you know, beyond, you know, beyond scope, <laughs> beyond, beyond comprehension to, to do that. Again, you let that guy die on the field. That guy, you know, back in, back in the day, the Spartan Warriors, right? They either died in battle or, you know, they... They, they either came back alive or carried on their shield, right? That was kind of the old, you know, they came back, you know, with the dignity of, of dying and being carried home on their shield. That's what Brady deserved. He yeah. deserved to, to be carried off the field on his shield. The, 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 the noble warrior did everything and couldn't give any more. You know, at 70 years old, he, you know, good. So they were never going to be, they're still going to be, somebody would be 60, they'd still be better than they are now. You know, it's just, it was, I just thought it completely arrogant. Do you feel that there was any part that Brady wanted to go out and prove that he could win without Belichick? Of course, of course, of course, of course. And he proved it, right? But I think, I think, I believe that the organization kind of pushed him on that. They wanted him out, which kind of got his, you know, panties in a bunch and made him, you know, kind of increase his value. Why wouldn't he want to, you know, if he was treated well, if he was given, you know, you're the guy, Tom, you're the guy. Everyone knows you're the guy. Tell me he's the guy. And, and, if you're the craft, who, who, who's side are you going to pick? Brady's or Belichick? They picked the wrong side. You know, they should have said Belichick, you know, two, no way. No way, you're gone. They would have been better off. They'd still be winning with, with, with Rex Ryan as head coach and Tom Brady at quarterback. Well, see, that's going to be the next thing is, is if you do if you do decide to cut the cord and, and amicably split from Bill Belichick, who are you bringing in? Are you going to give it to Gerard Mayo, your your, de- your defensive coordinator, or are you going to bring someone in with you know some of the younger guys who are doing such a great job? I mean, look at San Francisco. San Francisco has a great system. Look at you know Philadelphia, young you know head coaches who have great systems and they're winning. Well, they also have highly efficient quarterbacks. You know, look at so you know Jalen Hurts is a stud. Yeah, you know San Francisco's had highly efficient player quarterback and. It really comes down to that. You know, systems are fine, but, you know, you need that you need that efficiency at, at the quarterback. Uh, this is one thing on Belichick. He's only, his, in whatever it is now, 10 seasons as a head coach without Tom Brady. 10 seasons, okay? Not an insignificant career. That's, Vince Lombardi didn't coach 10 seasons at Green Bay, okay? So we have a career arc here. One playoff win 29 years ago in the wild card round. That's Belichick's postseason record without Tom Brady. Does? So there you go. So does, who they get in, you know, what? I was going to say, do you think that will Belichick, will he be able to get a coaching job elsewhere, and will he be able to break Don Shula's uh, win record? 
No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I think that would you are you going to hire? Maybe you know someone might say, "Hey, we want this guy to come in." I, I you know, I don't know what's in his mind if he wants to coach. I mean, certainly he has the love of the game, right? I mean, the guy has the love and knowledge of the game. Sure. He knows everything. He's been through everything. He he could he would certainly make some organization better, I guess, with the right quarterback. But uh, you know, when you look back, Shula looks Shula. You know, the, by the way, the Dolphins did a similar you know similar thing in their case when they ousted Shula. I mean, in their case, Shula was kind of the winch They won with running, you know, they run, they won with Paul Greasy, they won with John Dan Marino. They won year after year after year. When they started winning only 10, 11 games a year, they ousted Shula. They've never been as good. They're good this year, but they've never been as good as they were since they got rid of Shula. It's kind of a similar thing, except in that case, you know, the coach was kind of a catalyst. He looks better every day, doesn't he? I mean, think of all the games mm. Belichick and the Patriots have won over the years, right? Oh, the playoff game. I mean, still not as many as Shula. And by the way, Shula started coaching when there were 12 games in a season. 14 games in a season. You know, so uh, it's kind of remarkable that, uh, you know, I think Shula just was. By the way, I met Shula once when he opened. He had a steakhouse in uh, Providence, and I went to an event there. He was in his 70s, probably. That guy was a, that guy was a badass man. He, was, <laughs> he still had a vice grip on his hand. I'm not a small guy, and that he was a tough bastard. And, you know, he played back in the day, so. Uh, but I don't think I, I think it'd be a long shot to answer your question for for Belichick at this point to break that record. It's an incredible record, you know, and and uh, but we'll see, we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see. As always, uh, great having a conversation with you, Kerry. Kerry J. Byrne, uh, our guest, uh, uh, you know, uh, someone who uh, we've had many conversations about football, and uh, I thought he was the guy to to tap for this conversation. Anything you want to say quickly in closing? Kevin, just real quick, it comes up every year. I was in Dallas a few weeks ago with a friend of mine. And, of course, what we talk about Love Field, what always comes up is our, our infamous Super Bowl incident where I nearly got arrested at oh, the airport yeah. on the air with you, I don't know, 15 years ago? What yep. year? Oh, it was 2011, 2010, 2011 Super Bowl. Yep. So 12 years ago. Yeah, man, it's still a funny, funny, funny Dallas story that I literally got arrested. <laughs> I still have that so, sound cut. I still have that sound cut when you were in the cab and the cab driver got pulled over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was circling around the airfield with the, I don't mean this any disrespect, with an Arab cab driver. And of course, the cops are all looking you know, around the airport. And, and uh, you know, so we got pulled. Anyway, I'd love to hear that sound cut someday. You know, we have a final segment straight ahead. We're going to talk about Disneyland on the mountain in just a few moments. You are tuned in to Monday Night Talk. Don't go anywhere. This is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi, on 95.9 WATD. Hi, I'm Peter Brown from the Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. And I'm Dave Stevens of Decked Out Apparel and Promotions. We want to invite you to the greatest event of the season. Toys for Ton event, Alden Park in Plymouth. The cost to get in? An unwrapped toy. That's it? That's all. Believe it or not, there are many kids within the sound of my voice that will have no toys under their tree, if they have a tree at all. No bicycle? No. No skateboard? No. No dolls? No. No basketball? No. Oh. Nothing. Jeez. So please join us, and the Marines, and Santa, for the biggest celebration of the season. Make a kid's Christmas and have some fun doing it. See you there. See you there, David. I'll be there. Toys for Tots, Wednesday, December 6th, 5 to 7.30 p.m. at Alden Park, 160 Colony Place, Plymouth. Tis the season for trivia on 95.9 WATD. 
Test your knowledge of Noel and win fabulous prizes to stuff your stockings this Christmas. Listen for the cue from Eddie the Elf all this week and next and be the 12th caller to answer Tis the Season trivia. Correct answers win gift cards from one of our contest's wonderful sponsors. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas at the station that packs the presents, 95.9 WATD. This is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. Download the Monday Night Talk podcast from iTunes for free. Just search for Monday Night Talk WATD. This is Monday Night Talk with your host, Kevin Tachi. The big believer in saving the best for last. Well, first, especially this segment, because... I am somebody who is a fan of Disney. Most things Disney. Been to Disney Land, World, even been to Euro Disney. So when the conversation came up with one of the uh, PR people, says, hey, would you be interested in having a conversation with these two authors about Disneyland on the mountain and what could have been? <laughs> I was all over it. <laughs> so... Joining us to talk to us about Walt, Walt Disney, who is and the environmentalists and the ski resort that I guess never was. Uh, we have Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. They are joining us uh, here on Monday Night Talk. Catherine, Greg, welcome to Monday Night Talk. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? I'm happy do- to be here. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if you both called in or if you're sharing a phone. Sharing a phone. We're sharing a phone. Okay. I I think the first thing I want to start with is a little bit about each of you. My understanding is you both are are journalists. You write for various outlets. Uh, Let's start with you, Catherine. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you write for. Sure. So, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a journalist, obviously, and, you know, I've, I've written for a number of different newspapers and, and magazines. Um, you know, I, I actually, my day job is writing, um, doing a lot of business reporting. So, um, so the Disney aspect has kind of been a fun, fun, different thing for, uh, for me to do, certainly. Um, yeah. And how about you, Greg? You're also a writer and a journalist for, what, numerous yeah, magazines? Yeah, writer and journalist. Yeah, writer and journalist for mostly local magazines here in Colorado where we live. I've done a few things for some different national magazines and things like that. Um, but, yeah, I'm a writer in my day job as well, just like Catherine. Um, and I work for a university in communications. So is this was this like the next... Uh, the next thing to achieve writing a book or have you written books before Greg Ah, this was definitely the next thing to achieve this is definitely a bucket list thing that just kind of the idea popped up and I think you know both of us actually have creative writing backgrounds so I think we always in the back of our head thought that we would write fiction novels things like that but turned out that our first book was actually a non-fiction book that we wrote together so yeah it's it's a big deal. And so, all right. So, Catherine, did Greg already answer it that this is you're gonna this is your first book as well? It is, yeah. So, um, so yeah, we're really excited, and and, and certainly as like you, um, you know, certainly grew up with 
with a lot of things Disney. I went to the parks, knew a lot about Disney history, really, always really enjoyed it, and, and certainly always was fascinated by so many facets of it. And this was something that, you know, we kind of kind of heard about here and there, um, but not much, not much of a mention of it. Um, and, you know, as journalists, I think we, we tend to be a curious bunch. And so we just kind of obsessively started researching the story and realized how big of a deal, um, you know, this story was. And so, yeah, so certainly um, writing this book and writing something about Disney and this little known piece of Disney history is, is really exciting. So you're a married couple. Who turned to who and said, hey, let's write a book about <laughs> Disneyland? Who did it? I wish we could remember now. Um, I think I think it was at the exact same moment we turned to one another and said, we got it. That, 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 was, a, that was a smart comic, Greg. Very smart. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, Greg, you're also somebody who's, who is an enthu- uh, Disney, a Disney enthusiast? Uh, I will say that my wife got me a little more enthused than I maybe was initially, but um, had certainly been to the parks a couple times as a kid, but then, you know, she really got me into going on a regular basis. We've been on a couple of Disney cruises, mm. so, um, yeah, she get, definitely got me more into it. We haven't hit Euro Disney yet like you, but that's uh, another bucket list thing. So. Yeah, and we're also thinking about going to, I think, there's, isn't there a one in uh, in China, right? Isn't there a Shanghai Disney? Yeah, Shanghai is the, the latest one that they had built. Yeah. I I just got to talk my missus, and my missus is the one who she, from a little kid, she's the one who got me into into Disney. And then when she had kids, her her and her parents, they would go religiously. They would schedule everything out. They'd be there, rope drop. They they were stem to stern. And then, you know, as I came into her life, we, you know, would go as adults. And, I mean, I went as a kid once, but as I think going as an adult is a totally different experience. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Maybe maybe more fun. Yeah. <laughs> it, it definitely is. I think so. so when when did you come up upon the uh, the information regarding Walt Walt Disney wanting to go, to, you know, wanted to build uh, another resort, something that was going to be year-round? Uh talk to us about that. Yeah, so we kind of Again, we kind of hear heard a little bit about it over the years, um, but we we were in San Francisco um, in 2018, and we just randomly kind of came across a very short mention of it in um, when at the Walt Disney Family uh, His the Walt Disney Family Museum, and yeah, so we just were like, oh, that's you know super interesting. It was just a sentence or two. That was all it was. So then we started, again, obsessively kind of researching and realizing that this, what we thought was just this small piece of history, was actually this really monumental um, piece of history that really lasted for almost two decades, actually. So, I mean, was Walt a skier himself? Yes. So Walt was a skier, and he always said that he was a very amateur skier, um, which we appreciate as Coloradans who do not ski, by the way. Um, <laughs> always need to throw that out. <laughs> always ironic. Um, but, so yeah, he, he liked skiing. He wasn't, he always said he wasn't that great at it, but, um, but he was definitely interested in that. And he was also probably even more than he was interested in skiing, was really excited about 
nature and wildlife. Um, so that's certainly a big part of the story and, and part of the book is just how important conservation was to him. So this was this thing that he was building was really this perfect combination of, yes, he liked um, he liked sports, he was a skier, but he also really cared about nature and wildlife. And so this was really the perfect blending for him. So, so Greg, when did, when did uh, Walt come up with the idea of you know, Disney-branded skiing or a ski resort, especially in California. Yeah, well, it really happened in about 1960. So he had been uh, enlisted to help out at the 1960 Winter Olympics at the Squaw Valley Resort in California. He was uh, the chairman of pageantry. He was in charge of, like, the opening and closing ceremonies. But more importantly, he was in charge of entertainment for all the athletes. It was one of the first time that all the Olympic athletes had sort of lived together on site. And, you know, being so close to Hollywood and being that it was Walt, he was bringing up movie stars and costume designers and comedians and musicians from Hollywood every night. And he saw the uh, what the athletes, you know, thought about it and the response he was getting and just started kind of putting the pieces together. I mean, Disneyland had only been open for about five years at that point. And he just started thinking, you know, what would it look like for Disney to do this? And even we had a couple sources that said Walt at that point said, I could do this better than I'm seeing it done here at this resort. And so he kind of set out to do that. So I'm going to ask each of you, this is like a little bit of a quick Disney question. And that is, if you have your choice to go to either Disney World or Disneyland, do you have a favorite? Uh, Catherine. <laughs> I'm already, um, gosh, I I grew up going on the East Coast, so I grew up going more to Walt Disney World. Um, so that's always kind of my first, just because that's where I, I went as a kid. Um, but obviously, seeing Disneyland, seeing kind of what, you know, where it where it started um, is, 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 is very important, I got to say. Okay. Greg, would you, have you had a chance to go to both? And if you had your choice, oh, yeah. you have a favorite? Yes, we've been to both. I would say for me, Disneyland maybe is a favorite simply from a time perspective. It's a shorter flight. We gain an hour going there. Everything's very close. Disney World is great, but it's so spread out. It's like so much of your time is taken up riding buses or walking from place to place. And in Disneyland, everything is just sort of right there. It's very easy to get around from park to park and into the downtown area, so I'd have to go with that as my pick. But both are great. Okay. Kevin, what is your, what is your pick? My, mine, well, I, I, it certainly wouldn't be Euro Disney, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> it would be it would be Florida. It would be it would be Disney World. I, I feel it's just having the four parks. It's just you know to conquer each one in a day is amazing. Going to Disneyland, right. I feel like I can I can conquer that in like half a day. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's yeah. That's, I think you're right. <laughs> that's just me. Not to not to, not to be disrespectful. I, I love both, but I'm more more so uh, East Coast than West Coast. I wish I had a, a different answer. Uh, so <laughs> so we so we learn in your book that uh, that Mineral King became the the top choice to be able to build this uh, Disney-branded ski resort. Um, what did you learn he, as to what Walt had for a vision for this vacation destination? Yeah. So it was, 
you know, we obviously kind of talk about it being a ski resort, and mm. it was going to be a ski resort, obviously. It was going to be a place for, um, you know, people who are really serious about skiing, but also people who were not as serious about skiing because it was going to be, obviously, it was it was Disney, so it was going to be pretty family-oriented. Um, but at the same time, it was a lot more than it than a ski resort. So it was really going to be this year-round outdoor recreation center. So, I mean, certainly it was going to have sledding, it was going to have skiing, ice skating, that kind of thing, but it was also going to have hiking in the summer. It was going to have um, wilderness talks and wilderness walks and stuff like that. And it was also going to have things like a movie theater and movie, you know, they were going to have a lot of screenings of Disney movies. They were going to have a ton of different restaurants and, you know, one thing that's, that's interesting for fans of the Disney parks is one of the things that they were going to build, and they kept saying that this was really going to be focused a lot on nature and wildlife. They didn't want it to be, we call it Disneyland on the mountain, but they said it wasn't going to be, quote unquote, a Disneyland. Um, but at the same time, they started thinking about certain entertainment aspects to it, and they said, hey, let's have this kind of a fun show and we're going to make the, these audio animatronic bears and they're going to come out of the um, come out of the mountains and perform and sing for, for guests and that's going to be kind of one of our fun fun things that families are going to be really excited about. It's going to have that Disney magic touch. And when this didn't happen, it actually ended up becoming the Country Bear Jamboree. That was, of course, um, later opened in Walt Disney World and later in Disneyland. My goodness. Uh, again, yeah. if, you, if you're just tuning in, uh, just talking with uh, Catherine uh, Mayer and uh, Greg Glasgow, talking about Disneyland on the Mountain, the book I believe going to be released in September. Is that correct? Okay. September 13th. So this sounds like a, a fantastic idea. This sounds great. But you know what? I hate to say this, but usually things that are great, there's usually some kind of there's a, a thread of controversy that is somehow woven into it. What is that thread that is that was woven into it that became a controversy? Of course. Even back then for Disney, there was controversy. Um, really, it was this all coincided with the birth of sort of the modern environmental movement. Mm. So the big issue with this resort is that it was on this sort of pristine land, national forest land, um, you know, right on the edge of Sequoia National Park. This was a favorite spot for hikers and campers, really seen as one of the, like, most beautiful scenic spots in California. And, you know, the people, the environmentalists and the people that had summer cabins there were very opposed to this resort coming in and sort of the Disneyfication of, you know, their natural area. They had seen what happened with Disneyland after that was built and all the motels and fast food joints and gift shops that had kind of sprung up around it. And they were very opposed to that happening sort of in their little outdoor paradise. Yeah, I mean, if you look at uh, Kissimmee, Florida, I mean, it's, it's because, yeah. you know, up until recently, you know, it was, it was basically a community onto itself. I think they have their own fire department, police department, they kind of, they're self-governing, yeah. but I believe it's, it's changing because of, uh, of the Florida government, if I'm correct. Yeah. So. Yeah, I believe so. So this, so this went beyond, this actually went beyond just the controversy. This, actually, this fight went, went to court, didn't it? Uh, Catherine? Yeah. 
Yeah, it did, which is, again, crazy to think of, of how monumental this, this became. So, so really a lot of that opposition um, that Greg just had mentioned, so a lot of it started as, you know, a lot of grassroots stuff. Like you can imagine there were protests. Um, a lot of letter writing. Um, there was a documentary that they filmed about the area. Um, so a lot of stuff was happening. However, it it was getting a little bit of negative press um, for sure, but it also wasn't stopping Disney from, you know, planning this and for everything to kind of move along. So the Sierra Club, the major environmental group that, that led this opposition, then thought, you know, is there anything legally we can do? And they had talked to some people, and they had come back and and realized that there there was some things that um, that they deemed basically illegal in this pro- this project, which was you know it had to do with with how many acres this was. It had to do with a road that that had to be constructed that would then be in Sequoia National Park. So um, so then that happened, and the Sierra Club then put in this lawsuit and sued the project and. When the U.S. government won, um, instead of the Sierra Club, the Sierra Club thought, you know, this is a long shot, but let's try to appeal this to the Supreme Court. And shockingly, the Supreme Court actually took the case. So it was a really big deal. And um, one thing that is interesting to, to, to note is the Sierra Club um, never actually sued Disney. They ended <laughs> up suing the U.S. government because even then, you know, we think Disney, we think this kind of beloved company. And, you know, they had, had made it a point of saying the Disney, to sue Disney is going to be like suing the Boy Scouts or 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 something like that because, you know, people loved Mickey, they, they loved Disney, and they didn't want to sue them, so they wanted to sue the U.S. government who who's, who made this happen and, and allowed Disney to, um, to develop this. And they were the ones who actually um, opened up Mineral Cane for a bid. So that's how that happened. Is it possible that, that maybe this idea took place at the wrong time, you look at the 60s, you look at the peace movement, you look at the Vietnam War, you look at the things that were going on in America at that time. Is it possible that this was just an undercurrent of, of the bigger, greater things that were happening in our nation? Yeah, we think so, for sure. I mean, yeah, it was definitely the time when, you know, things were at a fever pitch in a lot of ways. And I think environmentally, you know, there was so much pollution happening. There were so many things being developed. I mean, none of the safeguards that we have today were really in place. The first Earth Day actually took place in 1970, kind of in the midst of all this. But, you know, there's a real sense, I think, of, oh, my gosh, everything's going to be developed. You know, nothing's, nothing's safe at this point, nothing's sacred. So I think there was more of you know, not hysteria, but I mean, definitely more fear at that point about some of the stuff that maybe in later times or earlier times wouldn't have necessarily been the case. So after after all of this this minutiae going to uh, the Supreme Court, did the ski resort did it ever get built? Was it ever considered? Even if it wasn't, it didn't have the Disney tag on it. 
No, nothing ever got built there. It's still today. I think Disney still owns a little bit of the land up there today, a couple parking lots. But, yeah, nothing really ever got off of the drawing board. It's sort of just stayed as this concept. And then, you know, the legal case put it into this kind of limbo where it kept getting appealed and then refiled. And then there was another national act that had passed to protect the environment that involved environmental impact statements that had to be created, which kind of put it in further limbo. So, yeah, it just sort of eventually never happened. Yeah, so basically it it finally ended in, it was 1978 that um, Jimmy Carter, when he was president, actually kind of threw his support by putting this area into Sequoia National Park. Um, So that's why this particular area is never was not and is not allowed to be developed so that's actually how the the story really ended for for the ski resort so uh, so all the time that you have invested in doing your research writing this book i'm going to ask each of you to give me your your response maybe it might be the same um (laughs) uh should the resort have been built allowed to be built and do you feel that it was a worthy project? Uh, Catherine, we'll go with you first. Yeah. Um, I definitely think it's it's worthy. I mean, I think what what kind of gives us sympathy toward the Disney side in, in a way is that this was really genuine for Walt. And this wasn't something that he wanted to create just to to make money you know i mean this was something he actually kept saying this is one of the most beautiful places that i've ever seen i want to keep it that way i actually you know i want to do this because i want more people to see it they don't have access to it right now um so i think it was it was certainly worthy and it would have certainly been so cool you know obviously to see exactly what they would have done because you know it's disney they don't just create an amusement park. They create Disneyland and they create Walt Disney World. And certainly this would have been something very different. Um, but we certainly, you know, both of us have a lot of sympathy toward the environmental side. And, um, you know, we, we really see both sides. I know that seems kind of like a cop-out, but, um, but we do. And we, we really kind of go back and forth um, in perspective from each each side, the Disney side and the environmental side in the book. And we really want to hear what people think about it, too. And, yeah. Greg, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would echo most of that. I'd say, it's you know, it's hard to do all the research we did and, and talk to the people that we talked to on both sides of this and really come away with a definitive answer of what should have happened because we see how genuine it was on the Disney side to build this and to, you know, for Walt to build it and celebrate nature, for, for Disney to build it after Walt died in 1966, very soon after all this started, and there was a big push to build it sort of in his memory. And then, But we also see the side of the environmentalists and how, how hard they fought to preserve this. So, you know, like Catherine said, you know, we wrote it from sort of alternating points of view throughout the book to tell both sides of the story and I think in the end we want hopefully people to read the book and, and come away with what they think should have happened. If I may as a fellow journalist I feel that in today's journalism that folks that folks tend to want to lean one way or the other they want to kind of it's easy to tell yeah. one side of the story if you want to give as much of the background to a story, I think you try to tell it as, from as many sides as, as possible. And I commend both of you for, for attempting to do that in this book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was early on, you know, 
something that, you know, maybe we were slanted more toward Disney side in the beginning just because of our appreciation for it. But I think as we started writing it, it really became important. Hey, we really have to tell this from both sides and show why it was important to each side. Now, knowing that the Disney is the Disney company itself celebrating its 100th anniversary, uh, give your thoughts as far as uh, contributions that uh, Disney has made to the culture and how much has it actually changed since Walt's death? Uh, uh, Greg? I mean, you know, yeah, the contributions it's made are huge. We're lucky to be publishing this book in the 100th anniversary year. That was quite a fluke of timing that we're happy about. Um, You know, I think it's funny to think about the time all this was happening. Like we said, Disneyland had just been built. They announced Walt Disney World around the same time that they announced Mineral King. So, I mean, at the time, I think Disney, there wasn't sort of this idea as much about the Disneyfication of things and now this kind of negative slant that people have about, oh, it's the Disney version of this. It's the kind of squeaky clean, sanitized version. I mean, there's some of that, you know, that exists and some of that perception exists. But, you know, when you go to the parks and when you see what they've done, I mean, the contributions they've made have been huge. You know, they've had some leadership shifts, obviously, in the last couple of years, and things are changing a little bit. But, I mean, it's hard to deny that they're just a, a juggernaut in American culture. And, I mean, yeah, it's it's just expanded in the years since, since Walt died. Uh, your thoughts, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I certainly would, would echo that sentiment. I think what's, what was interesting, you know, we wrote about Walt's death in the book because it did happen right. in the middle of the project. And, and so it's really kind of been interesting to see and research and write about what did happen after Walt died. And, you know, they certainly lost this kind of glimmer and obviously their founding father and everything that he was. But it's kind of amazing that we saw about how those company leaders then and today, I feel like they always kind of bring it back to Walt, which which I think is is just like a lovely sentiment. You know, they really wanted to continue what he wanted for the company. They wanted his dreams to come true. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's, it's just been amazing kind of to witness and, and, and amazing that they do want that to continue. And again, if you are just tuning in, we're speaking with uh, Greg and Catherine talking about their book, Disneyland on the Mountain. Again, this is going to be a published date is uh, September 13th, uh, just a little uh, less than a a month away. Anything I haven't asked you uh, as we close out this conversation? Catherine? Wow. Um, No, I don't think so. I mean, we're just, we're so excited and and we're excited about, you know, people who are interested in Disney history to find out more about this, including you and, um, and, and certainly the people, I will say that even if you don't like Disney, I think that you might like this book because we're giving you, uh, some opposition there, but, um, but yeah, so we're, we're really excited and, um, and, and, yeah, both about Disney history and the environmental history, which is which has been so impactful at that time. Greg, same question. Anything I haven't asked, yeah. but you feel it's important to tell the audience? 
I would just add that the book, you know, it comes out September 13th. It will be available on Amazon. It will be available on bookshop.org. We have a website, DisneylandOnTheMountain.com, that people can visit to get links to buy the book and learn more about us. And, yeah, just like Catherine said, I mean, this is our first book. We're super excited for it to come out, a little nervous for it to come out. But, um, yeah, just very excited for it to be out in the world and hopefully get some response to it. What was it like to hold your first book? To get that, get the the uh, box of uh, uh, copies of your book. We haven't gotten the box yet. What? <laughs> what? We're so excited to get it. Oh, so uh, any day, any day, any now, day so. now. All right. I know. Yeah. Can you believe that? So. We're looking so forward to it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, we our hands are just itching to hold this thing. Um, a website, uh, uh, any way for if folks want to fi- want to find out more information about the book, if they want to get a copy. And is there a thought as far as digital, uh, folks who uh, like to do e-read? Yes. So you could get either the um, hardback copy, if you like the print version, and you can get the electronic version. Both are for sale. Um, So really anywhere that you think books are sold online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org. And then, of course, you can ask your local bookstore, of course, as well. And we have a website, I think Greg just mentioned, but it's called DisneylandOnTheMountain.com. And that's where you can find all of our social handles and everything like that. We would love to hear from anyone. And like we said, because there are two sides of the story, we are so curious what readers think. So please reach out to us and let us know whose side you're on, what you wish would have happened. (laughs) I want to thank you both for taking time to... Uh, join me. Talk about uh, the, this book, which will be uh, which will be on shelves uh, in September, and uh, maybe we can have uh, a further conversation if you decide to uh, to do uh, another book down the road. That would be so great. Thanks so much, Kevin. It was great to talk to you, and thanks for the great questions. Yes, thank you so much. You guys have luck. best of luck. I can't wait. I, again, I definitely want to hear back from you once you uh once the book is released to hear what it is i know that it's getting i know it's getting great reviews already so that's just a a preview so that's great we're excited we'll get back and let you know how it goes all right well you have yourself a great evening same to you thanks i want to thank everybody out there for tuning in to another monday night talk here at 95.9 w-a-t-d until next week at 6 15 p.m have yourself a great evening Karen Harvey, Minister of Music at the United Church of Christ in Norwell. Please join me this Wednesday as I offer musical meditations, seasonal and introspective piano music appropriate for contemplating the coming of Emmanuel. Free and open to the public, this Wednesday at 12.30 p.m., treat yourself to a moment of peace with musical meditations. For live stream information, visit uccnorwell.org.